The Budget Control Act has been a defining feature of the federal fiscal landscape for eight years now. Suddenly, it's on the verge of disappearing for good. The House approved a two-year budget deal last week that does away with the last vestiges of the BCA caps, and the Senate is set to vote on the deal this week. David Hawkins is a veteran of Capitol Hill politics, now the editor-in-chief at The Fulcrum. He talked with me about the BCA and how it finally met its demise. I think the cause of death was uh, it was designed to die. Uh, If you think back to the very start of the BCA, um, it was written under duress. It was written... Uh, with the, the authors who wrote it hoped that it would never come to pass. I don't to, 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 to roll back the clock um, just briefly, uh, the idea, this was, this was a deal done uh, sort of at the last minute to, when, when the government got as close to defaulting on its uh, debt obligations as it ever had. Uh, the idea was uh, they would create this super committee that would figure out a, a grand budget deal, and only if if that grand bargain never came to pass would these uh, very, very difficult spending cuts come to pass. Uh, and then uh, somewhat predictably in the era of partisanship, the grand bargain didn't happen. There was no budget deal. So then the BCA stuff started to, in theory, was was the sword of Damocles that was hanging for over uh, the capital for a decade. But I think the people who, if you talk to the people who wrote it now, they said they really never expected it to take effect. Uh, they never expected that it would come to pass, uh, and even some of those who wrote it have ended up voting for the legislation that time after time has lifted those caps. It seems to me, though, also there, there were larger numbers of members in past years who actually, and you're right, the, the original authors didn't support the actual enactment of, of sequester, but there, there were substantial, more substantial numbers in past years of members who actually did support the spending levels that the BCA prescribed. That sort of fiscal conservatism and restraint has, has fallen out of favor in more recent years, hasn't it? Absolutely, absolutely right. Uh, and the um, one would have to say that the reason um, for that most recently is the president. Uh, this is a Republican president who does not think does not seem to be acting as though he believes that deficits matter. Um, he, um, the, the reporting, not, not by me, but by other people who cover the White House, is that he was um, ambivalent about this deal, uh, but concluded that the country, that the, that the uh, he could get away with, with signing the deal uh, politically, that the number of fiscal conservatives in his own ranks um, were were not they were not passionately enough about fiscal conservative that they would that they would give him a hard time if he signed it um, and so and so he did but you're right this is a um, we are in a different political era where the number of Republicans who think that this uh, is a hill to die on are, is very small and now and I would uh, or relatively small I mean it is true that it got through the as you and I are talking now the Senate vote hasn't happened. So I would predict that when this when this bill gets to the Senate, uh, it will be something similar to what happened in the House in terms of the of the share of Republicans who voted against uh, voted against it. In the House, two thirds of Republicans did vote against it, but they didn't make too much noise. Only a third of Republicans voted for it. There were, in some cases, fiscal conservatives who were being loyal to Trump, who said he was for the deal. I would expect something similar to happen uh, in the Senate. So what what does that mean? It means that. Um, the number of Republican fiscal conservatives who think this is, um, as I say, a hill to die on are, are small, in part because, um, to back up 
to, to take a to elevate the conversation a little bit. Mm-hmm. The, the amount of of discretionary spending we're talking about these are not is not the driver of the long term fiscal challenges that the country faces. Those have to do with so-called entitlements, the automatic spending, the Medicaid, Medicare, Medicaid subsidies or farm subsidies, um, but Medicare, Medicaid, and Social Security principally. Uh, it is the un, unfettered growth in spending on that stuff, um, as especially as older people live longer and as the baby boomer generation gets older and lives longer than ever before. That's what's really driving um, fiscal spending to go up and up and up and the president's own um, tax policies, which have which have shaved um, hundreds of billions of dollars off revenue for the for the next several years. Um, Those are the things that are driving our debt to go higher and higher and our deficits to be in the trillion dollar range for the next couple of years. And, you know, I think the other thing to say about the BCA, just looking back at it retrospectively, I don't think CBO or anyone else has had enough time to look back over the over the past eight years to actually determine what happened to appropriations and outlays. But, you know, in addition to causing turmoil every every two years or so, I would be very surprised if it actually had any of the effects that, that the original drafters intended in terms of actually reducing federal outlays, because there was this behavior of lifting the caps every two years and kicking the can down the road every two years over the over the course of this over the course of this period. Uh, exactly right. Yeah, I I don't I can't conjure up that uh, that fever line that chart in front of me, but I'm I don't I mean I guess we'll never know how much would the uh, would Congress have spent without uh, having to first lift the caps. I'm not sure. Right. I, I think probably it's essentially the same as as if the caps had never been there to begin with. There was I mean there was a certain amount of restraint early on um, when the when these caps were first instituted. It was. Uh, uh, there, there was more fiscal um, uh, hawkishness in the Congress than there is now, um, but I think probably by and large, you know, you, we can't reverse engineer it and prove it. But I think you're right that probably Congress has spent about as much as it would have spent even without these. All right, David. So the, the other aspect of this deal that we haven't talked about yet is the the extension or the the, the deferral of the debt ceiling until July 31st of 2021, which is. Assuming a Democratic president, and we shouldn't assume that, but if a Democratic president is elected uh, in, in 2020, that would be just a few months into that next president's term or the president's, President Trump's second term. Why put the, why lay down the marker at that particular point from the perspective of the negotiators here? Uh, I think, I think both sides, each side is, is a gambling that will happen on the other guy's watch, right? So, or or, well, the president is not gambling that. The president and the president is sending signals, actually, despite everything we've, that we've just been talking about, that if he is, he's been sending signals to some, or at least some Republicans think that they're hearing these signals from the White House, that if the president is reelected, that it is at that point that he will feel um, emboldened to uh, not do what he promised not to do. He, he promised in his first term not to touch entitlements. He promised not to touch Social Security or Medicare um, in particular. If he were to be reelected, uh, then, and, and if he decides that fiscal hawkishness is in his best interest and his, his best party's interest, his party's best interest, uh, then maybe he would go for a big, another grand bargain in, with the uh, political momentum that he would get from reelection. Uh, and 
coupling that with an increase uh, in the debt ceiling uh, in six months after his second term starts would be sort of a smart tactical move. If, if it's a Democrat who's the president, uh, then the Democrat who's the president um, would have to, whatever he or she does, um, to, to do a big fiscal policy deal, a big budget deal, would similarly need to be tied to this. So it, I think it's probably convenient for both sides to have this timed right at about the, the, right at about the time that whoever gets elected president next November would be bringing his or her own budget deal to fruition. We should remember, I always like to say this, I know you know this, I know many of your listeners know this, that the, the United States and just one other country, and I've, it's a Scandinavian country that's gone out of my mind, are the only two countries in the world where the politicians have to make an affirmative decision to pay the bills. Um, what this is, is you know, that the debt is simply an accumulation of all the past deficits. It is making good on the on uh, pay, loan payments, essentially mortgage payments for a house that got bought in some cases decades ago by other presidents of both parties and other congresses of both parties. It is a um, it is a political exercise that I think almost every budgeteer of of both parties would say shouldn't be a political exercise. The full faith and credit of the United States should not be subject to a political vote. It should just happen automatically. All right. David Hawkins, editor in chief at The Fulcrum. Thanks as always. Thank you, Jared.